Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter. And today I have a guest episode for you. Today's guest is Arlen Glick. Arlen began his ultra career in 2016 and shortly after started racking up podium finishes at a furious rate. Arlen is based out of Ohio, so his rise to ultra running fame came as a bit of surprise in a sport that often selects for racing out west, but nevertheless, Arlen built a solid resume, mostly racing closer to home early in his career before hitting some key results, which we dive into in this episode. Arlen is also unique in that he doesn't engage on social media. I believe he has a Strava account, but other than that, where he logs his running, no Instagram, no Facebook, no Twitter, none of that stuff. So he stays away from that stuff, which is interesting because that just means there's a lot less about him floating around online. And for that reason, I wanted to have him on the show to chat about how he goes about training and racing for ultra, his kind of rise in the sport to where now he's recognized as a person you have to look out for when you're on a race course. And he's also there. So I actually had the privilege of meeting Arlen and some of his family at the Havelina hundred last year and some more of his family actually at Western States this year. And I can't remember if we talked about this episode or not, but he is one of nine siblings. So he has a big family. So Arlen's got a lot of support back home and then a lot of support out on the course when he's out there racing and being crewed by many of his family members So yeah, just diving into kind of what got him into ultra running. I think there's almost always a unique story behind some of these people. It's just like, I mean, we have everything from people who were, you know, highly, highly competitive division one track and field and cross country runners, fast marathoners to people that maybe a little close to Arlen's as he described himself as a hobby jogger before he got into ultra running. So when I encounter individuals like that, who've had some success at the competitive level and called themselves a previous hobby jogger, I want to know what they're doing in training because they tend to be a little bit different oftentimes with that. And I think that kind of highlights some of the variety that we do see in the sport of ultra running, at least today. So in this episode, we talked about all of that stuff, including his training, some of his stuff this year. And what he did kind of getting into the sport itself. And it was a lot of fun to kind of catch up with Arlen and share his story on this episode. Before we get rolling, just a few quick announcements. I have to thank the listeners of the Human Performance Outliers podcast because this year I had made a pretty big shift in kind of my structure for coaching services and things like that. And I started kind of mentioning that a little bit more in some of the previews of the episodes here and I'm almost booked up now. So a lot of that came from folks that said they heard about it on this coach or they heard about it on this podcast. So uh, I got to thank you all for kind of reaching out and engaging me with that to the degree now where some of my packages are full and I'm looking for alternatives to be able to help more people with that sort of a service uh, that is time permitting essentially. So one idea that I'm kind of contemplating right now or putting together is running a seminar of sorts where I'll basically probably in different topics, really break down kind of how you want to structure your training and when and how to focus on stuff and be able to present that, uh, to a larger group of people virtually, and then also kind of have a Q and a type session after that, or a, maybe a follow up 
meeting with the people who sign up for that to kind of go over specific questions they may have relative to their training. Cause I think there'll probably be a lot of reoccurring questions as well as ones that are maybe applicable for more than one person in the group, if I would go that route. So long story short, if that would be something you're interested in, reach out and let me know, because if I find that that's something that is going to get a lot of interest, I'll probably fast track it and try to get that rolling a little bit quicker. Cause I actually do have a pretty good setup for a seminar right now in terms of being, having the organization of the product or the, the, the material essentially that, uh, that would be used for something like that. So uh, yeah, let me know. You can reach out to me on any of my social media channels at Zachbitter on Instagram, at Zbitter on Twitter. Shoot me a note at hpopodcast at gmail.com or head over to my website at zachbitter.com and shoot me a note through the messaging center there. All right. Uh, yeah, let's get in. Let's chat with Arlen. Arlen Glick, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I've uh, been a big fan of yours for many, many years. Uh, so it's fun to, to actually sit down and get to chat with you. Yeah, no, it's been amazing to follow your career. And I think this year had a little bit of maybe extra excitement on top of what it's already been an exciting running career for you. And it was, uh, I've been meaning to try to have you on the podcast since I think Javelina when we met in person for the first time. So uh, thanks for for taking some time out and coming on to chat. Yeah, it's good. It's good to be here. Looking forward to it. There's a lot of a lot of exciting things we can talk about. So let's go for it. Yeah. You know, one thing I really find interesting about just anybody who's kind of in your position, but particularly you, I think in this case is ultra running has now gotten to a point where it is big and people are following it and people are making kind of career decisions around it, including where they maybe want to live. So a lot of times when people start having success on the trails, it's uh, sort of a conversation of, well, when are they going to head out West or how much time are they going to spend out in the Sierras or can they get a six week stint over at uh, in Chamonix before UTMB and things like that to prepare. But you're coming to us from Ohio, if I'm not mistaken, correct? That's right. Yeah. And I have a, I have a little bit of a soft spot for the Midwest being someone who came from Wisconsin. So I always like to kind of hear what got people into ultra running in the first place. Cause I know when I first signed up for an ultra marathon, it was actually, I was just looking for a race to do. And I was more or less looking for a marathon and realized that there was an ultra marathon within 90 minute drive of where I was living. And I thought to myself, like I was aware of ultra marathons at the time, but my perspective was they were basically out West. So when I saw that there was that one, that close a 50 miler, I was like, well, maybe I'll just do it and see what happens. I probably won't do another one for, you know, maybe six, seven years, but we'll see. At the time I was, I think 24 and I told, told myself I was going to do an ultra marathon. I was going to be at least 30 before I did one. So <laughs> faith changed. <laughs> so what was it that first kind of got you interested in ultra marathons in the first place? Yeah, well, I didn't, I didn't run in, in school or anything, just took up, like, I like to say hobby jogging, kind of later in life, uh, when I was in my late teens, early 20s, whatever, just kind of like, I was your very dedicated hobby jogger. Um, and yeah, much the same way found ultras, maybe kind of the same way you did, where I was just looking for races to run when I was, you know, getting started. And I was like, Oh, wait, there's like, further than a marathon. Um, and yes, and there's you know, a lot of races here in Ohio. And so, yeah, just kind of just signed up for the next thing 
you know, I, I tend to take, uh, incremental steps. So, you know, my first race was a first ultra was a 50 K and I had stepped up from the marathon and then 50 miler and followed it up by a hundred miler. But yeah, kind of just curiosity. Do you remember what the 50 K was that you first did? Yeah, it was called the Eagle up 50 K and it was just, I'm just 10 minutes from where I live and where I still live (laughs) same place. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a race that I, I really enjoyed to, I, I enjoyed it. It was, it was just a five mile loop on a flat, like towpath and, uh, ran in, I believe that would have been like 2016. And then in 2018, I returned there for my first hundred miler. So I ran my first 50 K there as well as my first hundred miler. Um, and I usually attend the race if I'm, if I'm in town ever since then. Yeah. 10 minutes from your house, you kind of have to show up, even if you got a longer on the schedule at that point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In fact, there's, there's two big races that happened the same day, the last two years or so. And I, this, this, this year I'd missed it because I was out training for Western States. The previous year I paced someone early in the day at the, at the, the local race. And then, and then (laughs) someone during the night at the other local race. So yeah, it's, it's kind of like the biggest holiday for me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think like when, when someone does a 50 K a lot of times they, I think they sort of get the taste for ultra marathon and then they kind of get into that mindset of like, I wonder what a 50 miler is like. I wonder what a hundred K is like, I wonder what a hundred miles is like, or something similar to that. But when you did that first 50 K had you, were you already thinking about longer distance stuff or were you thinking like, Oh, let's just check this out. And maybe I won't like it. Maybe I will. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's impossible not to be thinking about the next, (laughs) the next thing when you're currently competing. Um, yeah, I was definitely probably eyeing the 50 mile distance, but knowing that I should take incremental steps. Um, so yeah, I was definitely always thinking about like, what's next, what's the next distance. Um, even at the time when I did my first 50 K. Interesting. When, when were you first aware of ultra marathons in general? I know you said your background in running was basically just being a hobby jogger, but when you started, (laughs) when you, when, from when you first started jogging, to when you started thinking, Hey, there's some events that I can maybe do. Did you already start thinking about ultra marathon at a time? Or was that a bit of an evolution as well? Yeah, it's, it developed slowly as I, I think it's, it's hard for me to remember exactly when I was made aware of ultras, um, uh, because I thought, you know, the marathon was the ultimate endurance dis, you know, the, the distance uh-huh. thing. And then when I heard about the Ironman, I thought, okay, now that's it. But at the time, I don't even think I knew there was like 100 mile races or whatever. And it may have been like when I was running my first marathon, I can remember a little bit of, of chit chat with the with the guys I was running with. And I can remember one of them mentioning that he had either dropped out or finished. I think he had dropped out of a 100 miler. And I was like, you say you did what? And that was kind of. I don't know if it was that particular time or similar time frame, but that's kind of when I was made aware that there's hundred milers. So I kind of looked them up and I was like, Oh wow. There's like a couple of these right around where I live, like here in Ohio. And I can remember seeing the start line photos of those races and thinking, wait a minute, you mean like those people right there are like going to tackle this? Like it just blew my mind. Um, So that planted the seed of curiosity, but I was like, definitely not, talking about it or telling other people what I was thinking at the time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing about your ultra running career from my perspective was when I first kind of saw your name pop up, 
it wasn't necessarily for any one event. It was, you went on just this kind of tear of volume racing, I'll call it, where it seemed like you were <laughs> running and finding yourself on the podium almost every month, if not more frequent than that. And it was just one of those things where, from my perspective, I was like, that's interesting because when I got into the sport, there was, I sort of got in at a time where there was still a little bit of a mentality of let's race everything in sight. The sport was still growing quite a bit. I mean, it still is today, but it was growing to the point where you had a lot of people that I don't think they anticipated having these opportunities to go all around the country, if not the world and do races. So it was sort of this like kid in the candy shop type mentality where people were like, well, oh, I'll do that one. I'll do that one. So they were racing a lot more. And then, you know, as competition would have it, you can't really do that for too long before you realize, you know what, someone's going to show up that trained for four to six months peaking for this race. And if I'm coming off the back of three or four other races, hanging on by a thread, I'm just going to get beat potentially by someone I should be able to beat. So what were you thinking at that point in your career when you were just like going from one race to the next? Yeah, well, transitioning from from hobby jogging into comp the competitive scene. Yeah, I found like s pretty decent success r kind of right away. Um, and so there was a little bit of pr pressure to like put my best out there, but just didn't have very much knowledge on the sport or how to really how to perform well. Um, it would have done me well to like reach out to a coach probably back then and be like, what's reasonable. But I wouldn't have wanted anyone to like put the brakes on or tell me the bad news or whatever. So I was just kind of happy to just be myself. But like looking back, knowing now where I where I came to and looking back, it's kind of like, uh, well, yeah, I could have done things smarter, but I also did things kind of the way I wanted to kind of, you know, free. And yeah, I mean, when you look at, I think a lot of people when I kind of stormed the scene at, at Havelina in 21. I think like I was unknown to everybody outside of Ohio just because I like we have some pretty competitive races, but they're still local races and not a lot of people from the West come here to compete or whatever. Um and so like yeah I maybe had a lot of wins to my name and whatever, but people didn't I, I wasn't like competing on a real um uh, competitive you know stage or whatever at the time. And so like I I definitely flew under the radar. So I kind of came to the scene with sort of a lot of experience, but and and a lot of success that people didn't really know how to compare it with with anything. Um, to where I kind of stormed the competitive scene and already like kind of knew what I was doing, kind of had a lot of a lot of racing miles under my belt. Um, and so I think it took a lot of people by surprise at first, and then they kind of like looked at looked me up and were like, Oh wait, no, this guy has been like successful a lot for a long time, but we've never heard of him. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was kind of an interesting way of getting into the sport. Um, but yeah, it, it was a fun ride. I definitely, I like really enjoyed being able to surprise people like showing up at a race and nobody knowing who I was. Um, I can remember at Havelina, like different competitors, like introducing myself or whatever, meeting them on race day and they'll be, and I could tell they like had no idea who I was and yet I was still competing with them. Um, and that was fun for a while, but of course it's not necessarily a reality anymore as I've, you know, kind of got into some pretty big races that are pretty well known yeah. as the lottery and luck would have it. But anyway, it's been a, it's been a fun ride. It's been very interesting. I feel like I have a unique slant coming in from coming into the sport. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think I would 100% agree Javelina was a breakout race for you in the sense that it was like you were able to express not only what you had been doing, but that you could do it out in like, I guess we'll just say west of the Mississippi, and you could do it in what mm. we would consider a very competitive environment, given that it was a golden ticket race for, you know, the Western States 100 to get into that, that event. So when you won Havelina going into that race. Did you have expectations? Was that the goal? Were you targeting a specific type of time or were you thinking, Hey, I'm just going to see what this is like. Let's find out what all this, what all this commotion is about out West and see what I can do. Or how did that all play out in your mind? Yeah. Well, I had been kind of, I had just kind of wrote off golden ticket races as being not my thing because they were hundred K most of them are 50 mile um, and then when Havelina came up and, and announced that they were a golden ticket race and they were doing it for the hundred mile distance, that's when a friend of mine reached out and was like, Hey, you really should check this out. Like you can really do well at the hundred mile distance. So it was kind of a brand new thought of mine. And I had, had planned on doing a different race actually that would have conflicted with that. And then a friend of mine decided to get married the day of the race. And I was like trying to figure out what I should be doing, ended up at Havelina, And I went into it like, having no idea what it's like to compete, you know, with that kind of, that kind of competition. But I mean, at that point I had probably, I don't even know, I probably won like most of the hundred milers that I had had competed in at that point. So I, I kind of like knew winning, but I didn't know like how, how I would stack up against the best. It was just like very, very unknown territory to me. And like, I think I went into it with the, with the right mentality that like, I think I could win this thing, but also like, I have no idea what it's going to be like too. So um, I kind of went into it with an open mind as, as not really knowing what to expect. Um, But I felt like it was within my realm of, of experience. Like I had competed in some really hot races. Um, Havelina is, you know, a pretty, pretty nice chorus similar to, you know, maybe, I mean, similar in some ways, uh, not a ton of vert, not a ton of technical terrain, um, and super hot, which I was fairly well acquainted with. So it just suited my skill set Right. And I think my mindset as well. Um, but I think like my bet, I think 2021 was definitely my best season yet. Um, because I got injured pretty bad beginning of 2022 and that's been, you know, challenging to manage that ever since. Um, but like 2021, I mean, I was kind of on a tear and ended it with, with, you know, Havelina. Um, and that was, that was really neat to like show up on this, on the big stage at the end of the season. Um, uh, because, you know, I, I just assumed that this, this trend would keep on going upward, but you know, when you're, when you're young and you just think you can only picture things getting better. Um, but I mean, I was off to a, a pretty rough 2022 and, and, uh, you know, still trying to kind of figure out where, <laughs> where things are headed, but it's, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. And you, you sort of one up yourself in 2022, I would say, despite whether you call <laughs> it your best year or not, I think it probably wasn't a, something that maybe if people weren't surprised by your performance at Havelina, they were probably at least somewhat surprised or at least excited about what you were able to do at Western States later, I guess the following year. But before I, we jump into that topic, I do want to ask, you know, at that point in time, you had done a lot of racing, sort of from my perspective, if you're looking at it from an athlete side of things or a competition side of things, usually once you start winning some races 
and you show some consistency within that. If you want to try to find yourself a sponsorship that's going to at least help you get from race to race, maybe give you a stipend, depending on kind of what you're trying to do or, or what you have done and things like that, those options start becoming more available. Was that something you were kind of targeting before Javelina or after Javelina? Did you think to yourself, hey, I would like to get a sponsorship and make this maybe a little more, uh, I don't want to say sophisticated, but maybe a little more logistically easy in terms of uh, having some support? Yeah, I mean, I always thought that would be really cool, but I was like at the time not sure with my, you know, my stand on social media and different things. I, I was just like not sure if this was really possible or if there was a company that would really believe in me or, or you know, could market me. Um, and so I kind of like had that in the back of my head that like that would be really cool. But I was also like, like really not until craft kind of like came out and like really uh you know sh sh you know showed me that that i'm good enough for them and and they they don't really care like they really like me the way i am and, and whatever that's when it became kind of a reality like this is actually going to happen um up until that point i never really knew if it was possible or not like all the way through 2021 i was like not sure at all if this was going to happen or not yeah, it is an interesting dynamic because I, I actually that's probably something that's changed the most since I got into ultra marathon. I did my first one in 2010. So like social media was there, but it wasn't the powerhouse that it is today. It was it, it was more still about like winning races, getting in magazine articles, maybe getting on blogs, that sort of thing was like what was going to potentially kind of attract a sponsor but really it was all tied to race results because those other things really didn't happen if you weren't at least being competitive, showing up in rankings and things like that. So as an athlete, it was kind of this sort of, uh, well, I got to show up to races and do well, or, you know, at least make a name for myself within the community to the degree where I'm talked about invisible. Whereas now I think with social media, you can sort of turn, turn the camera on yourself a little bit. And that actually, that, that as you mentioned, that adds a value to a company and they are a lot of times looking for that. But I also think there's probably some, some since you're kind of pretty unique in that regard that you don't use social media, a, an untold story is maybe a way to say it because there's just, you're not, your life isn't all out there on social media where people can just <laughs> dig in. So to some degree, I think a brand would maybe want to say, hey, we can tell that story. And it sounds like Kraft stepped up and wanted to do that. <laughs> well, yeah. And I think a lot of, I think it takes the right company with the right person, you know, with mm -hmm. the right athlete, because like in my case, yeah, I have a, I think people are very curious about me uh, much more than athletes who throw everything they have on social media. Um, and, but it takes a company that's willing to do the work themselves. And I think that's where it really showcases Kraft's ability to have to have a good team and to and to market their athletes and to really tell that story for me. Because like for me to be authentic, I feel like I just couldn't do that for myself. Um, but I like a, a lot of companies, I think they just pay their athletes and look at how many followers they have on social media and then just kind of expect their athletes to market themselves. Where I think Kraft kind of seen beyond this and was like, Hey, I think this guy's got a really cool story, but we're going to have to tell the story. And I think one thing that that I think is probably really unique and very powerful is the fact that since people are curious about me, they have to dig into craft to find out. 
Well, you know, when they're following craft on social media rather than following me because they want to find out about me, well, what kind of an opportunity does that give craft? Like in order for people to access me, they have to go through craft. And I think it's kind of a unique scenario where I don't think a lot of companies or a lot of people are thinking about it this way, but I think it's kind of a unique scenario where people have to go through craft to access me. And I think, I think that's really going to benefit craft in the end because, you know, they can, you know, it opens people's eyes to them as a company, to them, you know, to the, to their other athletes. And it just brings an awareness to them by making it sort of a unique and a different scenario. Uh, But it's been, it's been fun, but it really, like it really takes a team. You can't just, you know, it's not right for every company because not everybody's just set up the way, the way we are here um, with myself and craft. So it's an interesting scenario. Mm -hmm. Well, where I first became kind of more aware of just kind of that aspect of like scarcity is sort of like a potential advantage was when I was following, I think it was actually Western States 2022 and, you know, like most people who weren't in the race, I was, uh, you know, checking out the live stream and looking at the comments and things like that. And like, you had a little bit of a, of a fan gallery there who was cheering for you because <laughs> here you're this guy from Ohio, unsponsored at the time because you signed with crap after that race, I believe. And, uh, or maybe later in the year even, but uh, yeah, so it was like this, this, this guy from the Midwest who people were like aware of, but didn't know a ton about. And you're out there with like, I think a sizable portion of your family all crewing you. And it was just this story that sort of built up and evolved over the course of the day as you worked your way through the field. And as someone who grew up in the Midwest and actually did Western States as my first hundred miler, first mountain race, I, I was aware of how easily that course can humble somebody. So I was just on pins and needles thinking like, I hope Arlen knows what he's doing. (laughs) (laughs) and you just kept moving up the field to a point where I was surprised that you moved up to third place, but you did. What were you thinking about before the race, during the race, after the race? Was that part of the plan? (laughs) Yeah, I definitely was like there again. I mean, I competed and and definitely did well at at Havelina when I, but, but the, but the, the competitiveness kind of peaks out when you, when you get to Western States. And also it was very new to me. I mean, that was my first mountain race. And so it was like, this was all new and strange territory. Um, but I knew the hundred mile distance very well. Like I was probably like, that was probably like a dozen hundred milers for me when I, when I actually got to Western States. Um, and so like, yeah, I, I think I went into it with the right mindset that like, it's just wide open. Um, but for me, like, I don't really pay much attention to splits or anything. I may basically just focus on effort level. And so, yeah, it was fun moving up through the field at the end, but at the same time, like I had so many struggles throughout the day and I thought that my race was like going so horribly wrong that when, you know, when I started moving up through the field, like I was hiking all the climbs and just like tearing on the downhill. And so it was like this really weird scenario where I'm catching people, but I don't know why, like, <laughs> I don't think I should be, but I'm catching them. And so it was, it was encouraging. It was like when I actually got into the podium position, knowing that like Tyler green was right behind me, but I was like, there was something about reaching the podium and knowing that I, 
at least I was in the podium and, and then could hang on for dear life. There was something that came over me like, wow, okay, I actually like have a lot of reason to fight at this point. And I think that's where like you want to get yourself in a position. It's so much easier when you know you're moving up through the field, but yet if you're too far back and you're not really, you don't really have much incentive to fight anymore, then that's, that's really tough too. And so it's definitely a fine line to try to figure out where you belong in a race. Um, but to your point too, about like the live chat, I think, I think it was the era of live chat that showed how influential a person can be without social media, because I think like my fans are very vocal when they have a chance to express themselves because they're like a really big fan of like who I am and the way I got to where I'm at, but like they have a hard time expressing themselves. So when they have a chance of like the live chat, I think it just comes out so much more vividly. And I think that's probably where, you know, craft and some of these brands were probably finally looking on like, wait a minute, what are we doing wrong here? Like, why isn't this guy sponsored? Um, he's obviously influential, um, but in a very unique manner that's 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 hard to put a value on. It's hard for a, a company to say, well, you know, we've been like looking at people's social media platform for a long time. And now this guy doesn't really fit any boxes. Um, and so they kind of had to uh, create a box for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. I, I do want to back up because after Western States, you had, if you hadn't already officially arrived and now the expectations were, I think probably leveled up a bit, but you know, I want to rewind to just like a little bit about you and your, your actual life outside of ultra running too. Cause if I'm not mistaken, you and your brothers own a company that you work together at. Yes. So my oldest brother, Andrew started an excavating business about 10 years ago, maybe 12. Um, and so I started, I helped him out pretty much from the get go um, and yeah, so we ran that for, you know, the last 10, 12 years. Um, and yeah, it's been, it's been successful. It's been hard. It's, it's been really challenging. That particular job has been a bit challenging to balance with, with the running. Um, just because like, you know how it is, like structure is very important, um, for training. Um, it's been challenging to, to get structure in that but at the same time, working for your brother, uh, he can't really fire you. And so <laughs> he's been pretty flexible. So in, in the last year or two, he's it's been more like, hey, I, I kind of need a day or two a week just simply for training. Um, and so it's been kind of a, a nice transition out. Um, I thought I was going to be working more after I... Uh, <laughs> started doing this running professionally um i found out pretty quickly as much as i was going to be gone that it really wasn't going to work out to do much work um although i was working today so it, <laughs> um, i guess i'm still sort of part-time um but i came from a big family there's uh nine of us and uh so my oldest brother and i worked with the company i'm in the middle of family and then my youngest brother started helping us recently so he's kind of filling the gap where i where I kind of stepped back a bit. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I mean, I've had this conversation more frequently now because like when I, when I got into the sport, there was maybe a handful of recognizable people who were like, sort of, I'm going to quit my day job type of situations with ultra running. 
Uh, I mean, I'm sure there were more, but in terms of like, it was scarce. It wasn't something you really aspired to without an exit plan that made sense, especially if you had a really like productive career in place. And somewhere between then and now that has shifted, I would say, to where the majority of young ultra runners that are in a position where they've been top three at Western States or something similar like yourself, they're looking at that as a potential like career move or an investment in terms of, okay, I'm going to like start this out. But for me, my curiosity within that is what is that at the individual from one person to the next? So like, I think some people probably thrive in those environments where like, okay, I can just carve out this perfect training plan where everything is centered around these training races, the, or I'm sorry, these training, these training blocks and then the races. And then I think there's probably still a group of people. I would consider myself at least partially in this group where I really like to have other things going on, like work related type stuff that I feel like I can also be building and focusing towards. Uh, my wife's kind of like that as well. She's got a career where she really enjoys that and building out what she's doing there as much as she does the training and racing. So we try to make it fit without compromising racing as much as we can. But I think there's maybe a balance there between like, at least for now, how much you want to give up outside of the training and racing from a career standpoint at this stage, I'm sure it'll get to a point where it's so competitive where you maybe don't have a choice and the sport will select for the people who thrive in those environments. But, uh, is that, does that ever cross your mind as you're kind of, you, you may be in the middle of navigating that. It sounds like it, but what are your thoughts with that? Do you think you'll probably keep some part-time type stuff around just because it's gives you another kind of value add in life in terms of what you're working towards? Yeah, it's a very interesting scenario for myself because like, as you mentioned earlier, I'm from Ohio. And so, and I, I love running in the mountains. So like this past year, it's been like, while well, I thought I was going to still be working part-time because I just assumed that, yeah, I would get tired of fidgeting with my running. Um, but it's been much different than what I had perceived it to be. Like I have found in the last few months that I could be perfectly content with just running. <laughs> like that would be fine with me. But, and also probably a big part of that is the fact that I, I live in the East and train in the West. So I'm like bouncing back and forth so often right now that like, it's really hard to try to work, fit work in. But if I were say living in Utah or somewhere where I had a mountain out my back door, it would probably feel like my life is not going anywhere. And maybe this would get boring really quick if all I did was running. So I think the scenario for myself feels so much different than maybe someone else, but I feel like running would keep me happy. Um, and I also, it's like so hard to gauge where the future of the sport is going to go. Like, yeah, you kind of want to have an exit strategy, right? Cause none of us are probably making enough to retire on it when we're done. Right. So we have to, we kind of have to have an exit strategy. Um, but at the same time, like I could see a lot of opportunities even after, you know, we, we retire from the competitive side of running where we could probably find a pretty decent career within the running world somewhere. There's probably a lot of opportunities that will arise in the next, you know, five to 10 years um, that, that I'm thinking like that could be my future could, could remain in ultra running, whether it's, you know, 
whether it's working for a brand or working, you know, doing something within the running realm. Um, but I kind of always thought I would need that, that kind of external, I want to do something outside of running for, for work, kind of keep, keep myself busy. Um, but it's, it's definitely looked a lot different as I realized how much I would be gone and how, you know, how little time I would have for this part-time job because of the scenario where I, I don't run out. I mean, I do run out my back door when I'm home, but I can't really train for the races that I want to compete in from, from my home. And so it's, it's been very different for me, but I found the running to be a lot more fun and satisfying than I had perceived it to be um, before I was doing it professionally. And just a quick shout out to the show sponsors this year. Those include Element T Electrolytes and Delta G Ketones. Element T Electrolytes is currently running a promotion where you can try out all their flavors in a sample pack for free with your first purchase. Right now is a great time to try that out too because they have their limited edition grapefruit flavor on their catalog at the moment. If you do that and you get that free sample pack, you'll also get citrus, watermelon, orange, grapefruit, like I mentioned, raspberry, chocolate, mango, chili, raw, unflavored. All you got to do to access that is use the show show URL, which is going to be in the show notes. But for those of you listeners, it's going to be drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO to get you that free sample pack option. What you get with their electrolytes is each little convenient packet comes with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium. For me, that means about one of those packets and about two liters of fluid. I'll usually have a little bit of chocolate with my coffee in the morning, and then I'll have that ratio built into my hydration if I'm heading out for a longer session in the morning, especially if it is hot. Also supporting the show this year is Delta G Ketones. This year, I added a new product to my training and racing routine. The latest research on exogenous ketones motivated me to consider trying them out. I've been using Delta G formulation mainly because all the research showing promising benefits and recovering performance have been done using their formula. So when it came to deciding which exogenous ketone do I want to try playing around with during the year, Delta G stood out. I was really fortunate that on their website at deltagketones.com, you can actually sign up for a free consultation and they will actually look at what you're doing and help you decide whether it's a good idea or not to introduce some exogenous ketones into your training or your lifestyle and specifically how to do it. So for example, for me, what this means is if I'm doing a big workout or a key workout, I'll just take one bottle of Delta G ketones performance and head out for the workout. If I'm doing something longer, like a race, like a hundred mile race, I'll take one of those before and then about every three hours afterwards. So they kick in in about 15 minutes or so. And that's when you can start to see that concentration in your blood show up. So usually if it's before something, I'll try to take it around that amount of time before the start of it. One of the reasons, like I said, Delta G stuck out to me is they actually are the ketone ester that received the DARPA grant in effort to design the formula for special forces. Since then, Delta G has produced 50 plus published studies and are part of 20 plus ongoing studies. These studies include two very recent ones that explored exogenous ketone relationship with increasing natural levels of EPO, as well as increasing circulating dopamine concentration, improving mental alertness and improving post-exercise inflammation in endurance athletes. So check out Delta G's research and their product line at deltagketones.com. Like I said, there you can also sign up for a free consultation to dive into the research, usage, and whether it is beneficial for you. 
I want to ask a bit about just the preparation side of things for you, because this is another thing that I think has evolved quite a bit from when I started, but there's still a fair bit of variety with it. And that's just kind of how you go about preparing for these races. I think you mentioned that you kind of prefer the hundred mile distance. So is there a, is there a system that you follow or a series of types of training focuses you do throughout the year in order to prepare for some of your bigger races? Yeah, I think, yeah, I'm definitely a hundred mile specialist. And for that reason, it seems like when I talk with people who bounce around from like, say, fast marathons to hundred mile distance, and they try to, you know, juggle a lot of variety into their, their training. It seems the, the, what I'm getting from them is that it's really hard to change your tires from, you know, road tires to mountain. And for me, it's been very easy to transition from one race to the next. And I think probably the reason is, is because I'm racing the hundred mile distance basically only. And I, I think it's, it's something that's not talked about a lot, but I, I think you can fit a lot more races in your calendar. If you're sticking with a specific distance, um, you see marathoners run, you know, a, a decent amount of races and ultra marathoners run, you know, some of them do a lot more than others, but I think I can probably fit very comfortably four or 500 milers into my calendar. And which may sound like a lot, but it's actually a lot easier than you would think when you're sticking with a specific distance. And two, because I think for training for the hundred miler, like I think volume is probably your, your, you know, best weapon or, you know, most useful tool. And so for me, I always erred on the side of using volume rather than specific speed work or, or, you know, trying to increase efficiency. Um, And it has catered to producing very, I would say very consistent results. Um, I know when you compete on a really competitive stage, you notice the little differences a lot bigger, like at Western States, when I ran 40 minutes slower, I went down 11 positions where in a lot of other races, you may still win if you ran 40 minutes slower. Mm. Um, and so like, I think, I think if you were to look at it strictly from a performance standpoint, I think I probably race more consistently than most, um, when you compare my best results with my worst, um, but I think that's probably due to just the fact that I have such a specialty within the within the hundred mile distance or or similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you haven't ever dropped out of a race, have you? Um, I got to think for a hot minute. No, I have not. Yeah, because I was I was really nervous going into Hard Rock. I was like, yeah, um, <laughs> I was like, I can't drop. This cannot be my first DNF. Like this, yeah. I was, I was a bit more nervous going into hard rock than I've ever been, but I have not dropped out yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that alone probably makes you someone we could consider consistent as uh, you know, usually dropping out is something that happens eventually, or for someone who's raced as many times as you have, have probably happened already in most cases. So that is an interesting perspective. So do you do no speed work then, or is it just something that's very, very minimal relative to just the volume target? Yeah, it's very minimal. So like when I'm looking at my training block, I usually don't do it in my buildup. I usually don't do it in my taper much. Um, it's, it's, if I'm feeling fairly fresh, um, I would say that the most 
speed work I did was building for Umstead the beginning of this year. And I was building from a very low maintenance volume over the winter where I didn't train very hard, really trying to rest up the body. Um, and I was feeling particularly snappy because I was using that race as my, as sort of my tune up race, my build up race. I didn't hit the volume that I normally do when I was training for that. And so I was feeling maybe a little bit more snappy, um, but I do it a lot by feel. And usually it's during the peak volume phase. If, if I feel like, if I feel like I'm, I mean, if, if the legs are feeling snappy or something, um, I just try to listen to my body because I know in the past, like the speed workouts, I'm pretty sure are what set me off into injury. And so like, I think you can kind of do a lot more volume if you do, you know, if you drop your speed workouts. Um, but it's still a balance. I'm trying to figure out where the value, you know, where the most value is. I think there's, I, I think there's probably a lot of value in going either route, but I think you kind of have to do one or the other. I think you kind of have to either go with a lower volume, really high quality miles or else kind of high volume, low quality. Um, and there are some people who, who managed to get both in. Um, but I think that they're, they're kind of riding a fine line of, you know, risk, risk of injury as well. When you, when you take that approach. Yeah, there certainly are a lot of moving parts. I think one of the ways I look at it is I think of like an opportunity cost where let's say if I were training for Western States and we're sitting in like December, early January, and I have a really strong base because let's say I was in a situation like you where I had, one Havelina. So I was sitting at a really strong base coming off of that race, took a little bit of downtime. The opportunity cost of me maybe keeping the volume a little lower and doing a little speed work when I'm still around six months out from Western States is maybe a fair trade-off because I just don't have a lot of progress to be made redoing what I just did. But I also have plenty of time to continue doing that after a round of speed work. And then as I get closer to the race, I'm definitely with you in terms of let's start getting very specific and the nature of hundred miles is long and slow. So <laughs> you find yourself <laughs> the opportunity cost at that point when you're in like, you know, the May, June phase of training and probably earlier in a lot of cases, like it's probably the opportunity of doing a short interval session in exchange for what could potentially be a day or two of just kind of more race specific, higher volume is probably not worth it at that point. Cause then you need to be working on what you're actually going to be doing at Western States. And, um, but like you said, you know, you, I think you have to know yourself as a runner too, because, you know, I find like some people in, in college, we call them mileage hogs. <laughs> They're people who could just do an insane amount of volume without getting injured. And those folks ended up seemingly to get injured a little more easy with speed work. And then there was the guys who could just do speed workouts all the time. But then when they get to a certain amount of mileage, they get hurt. So I wonder always sometimes too, how much of that goes into just the actual runner to whether they're able to, how, the, how, I guess how seamlessly they're able to navigate either of those in terms of staying healthy. And at the end of the day, you got to be healthy to race well. So finding that out about yourself is probably a big, a big advantage. Yeah. And I think, I think too, like something that the people often I think overlook is just like muscle memory or like, I think like if somebody's done some really high volume in the past, they're always going to kind of sponge off of that. And it is interesting how you mentioned, like some people just respond so much better to volume and others to speed work. And it seems like when you get outside of what you're, you know, what you're familiar with, why that's when thing, bad things happen. 
Um, but I think like, yeah, when you're like, if you've done a lot of high volume in the past and then you maybe step off and, and do maybe a little more speed work, less volume, like you can see some amazing results. And like, I look forward to so much the future and like experimenting with, with the amount of miles I have under my feet, I feel like I could do a lot of different things and get the same results. And so I definitely in the future will be experimenting with like lower volume than I've ever done for a race and doing some speed workout and just see what happens with the experience. But I think it's so much different when you're coming into it, like running your first hundred miler, and then you're trying to do something different. And then like something goes wrong and you think it was your training or this or that or the mm -hmm. other thing. I think there's so many times people like miss, uh, how should you say misdiagnose what went wrong on race day. Um, but like with my training, regimen in the past it's produced like pretty cons consistent results and i would consider umstead this year to be one of my best races ever and i did yeah. it with slightly less volume than i normally do um a little bit more speed work and i was also coming like i was building for the season so that was not the main race but i also was coming off of pretty fresh legs from a dead winner and so there's so many different ways you can look at it but i i look forward to in the future doing some some different things just to see how an experienced body will respond to different types of training. Yeah. And it sounds like maybe this is a little bit of a trend with your personality too, where like in the beginning you were mentioning how like you kind of saw, I should take this one step at the time versus, Oh, I just did a 50 K time to sign up for a hundred miler. <laughs> so <laughs> let's, let's actually get some familiarity and then make a small change. See how I respond to that before making another change seems kind of similar with your training approach where you're like, okay, I, if I like focus on maybe a little more volume centric plan versus throwing everything at it and then find trying to decide what worked, what didn't work versus I kind of have a good establishment of what I'm going to get out of this volume centric approach. Now, if I make a small tweak here, I can see how that, how I respond to that, how my next stage of training goes after it, how my racing goes and really probably give it a little bit more of a clear look at what that actual addition or subtraction actually did to your, to your performance. Yeah, that's definitely something I want to do. And, and it's definitely, you know, true to my character where I like to change things, incremental steps at the time. I'm the kind of guy that comes to conclusions very slowly. Some people do this and it didn't work. And so they were like, oh, that didn't work. And I'm like, wait, no, I need to try three more times to make sure that that doesn't work. Um, but yeah, I, I think like making changes at this point, just with my experience in racing and knowing, you know, head games and how, like how to close well during a race is probably a lot more valuable than the little tweaks I'm going to make in my training. So like, I don't know. I think, and I also think that like, some people get like really obsessed with their training and like making sure that they're getting their speed workouts and, and getting everything. Done. And I think that's like very valuable if you're, you know, doing a low volume plan. But I think probably the more you increase volume, the less specific, like the less gains you're going to find by getting things all figured out or very specific with, with that. Um, for me, I know that my, I kind of take just one day at a time, like, if the weather looks nice or looks good for this or that or the other thing, like I'll just kind of base my training one day at a time with kind of a, a mind going into the week, kind of having 
an idea of what I want this week to look like, but not necessarily exactly what each day needs to look like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. At the end of the day, you're going to have fewer quality sessions than you do days in the week. So having that flexibility to do them on the days that present the best situation is definitely a good strategy if you can do it. So, um, yeah, I mean, Umstead, we should probably talk about that because I, I feel like that was an underrated performance. And I think that you, we, I think you have yourself to blame for that because of what you did at Western <laughs> States. And then, although it wasn't your fault that you got chosen to do the hard rock 100, you sort of had this situation <laughs> where heading into the year you're in Western States, you're in hard rock. They're less than three weeks apart. So the big question is, are you going to do the double you announced you're going to do the double. So everyone's thinking about you and Courtney doing the double at Western States and hard rock and you go and you just crush Umstead. I think, I mean, you broke the course record and we're, if I'm remembering that right, you were the first person under 13 hours at Umstead. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. So, mm -hmm. and yeah. that's not a new race. <laughs> that's one that's been tested. A few times. <laughs> so that one stood out. So a lot of people, I think that were really kind of fans of the sport, especially that have been, that have been around for a while we're talking a lot more about that result. And I think the casual observer, maybe someone new to the sport who wasn't necessarily as aware of Umstead's history and how tested that course has been over the years. What did you think after Umstead? Were you thinking, okay, I'm really primed for Western States now, or were you kind of thinking of that as a two-step process with Western States and Hard Rock? Yeah, I definitely planned Umstead. I mean, it's I've kind of wanted to go back ever since I was there and 21 i think i was um and i've i've kind of wanted to go back and, and kind of hone my skills a little bit and just see like what i was capable of on that course um it definitely was a success when i got done with umstead but i still was dealing with compensation kind of the test i didn't get i got the the like the result i wanted i was super happy to break 13 hours and like that was everything i needed to do but like I struggled a bit during the race with like dealing with the compensation that I've been dealing with for a year and a half now. And I'm like, ah, I didn't necessarily feel the way I wanted, but I was hoping that things would clear up for the double. That's what my fear was all on, you know, what would happen during the double when I tried doing, because it was climbing as what was really affecting the way I was feeling. Um, and surprisingly, like the compensation fizzled to almost nothing by hard rock. It was very little during Western States. But even though like overcoming my biggest fears <laughs> still led to, you know, not the result I was looking for at Western States. Um, but what's interesting to me is everybody was so, you know, hyped and for obvious reasons, because Western States kills hard rock, right? There's no way you can prepare for both. You're going to Western States is almost sure to kill hard rock. Mm -hmm. Like you you can't really train for hard rock if you've got western states on your on your calendar you can't really train you know so basically what i did is train for western states and was like forget it whatever happens to hard rock happens but what's interesting with that being said from my perspective like hard rock i was i felt so much better at hard, like even though it was completely outside of my sphere of what i've done in the past or what's familiar with me and i mean i felt like a fish out of water at, at 14,000 feet, but like, even there, like I'm convinced that my body was more ready to race at hard rock than it's ever been at any of my races. It was just so far outside of what I'm familiar with that. Like, yeah, the, the result was good. I, I what, got like fifth or whatever. Um, but 
my body was ready on the day. It was just like too many unfamiliarities. Um, if I had felt that good on the day of Western States, I think it would have been a completely different day. And it was so, it was such, it was such a twist to throw to my mind. I was thinking all year of like success at Western States, like that's where it's going to happen. And after coming off of Umstead, I was like building a lot of confidence towards a good day at Western States. And for a reason that I still have not figured out, and that's probably one of the most frustrating things with my performance at Western States this year. It's like, it's so easy to find excuses after a race, like to say, oh, this went wrong or that went wrong or the other thing. And like, I've got these little things I could say about Western States, but really when it comes down to it, at the end of the race, I was like, I don't know what I did wrong. I just sucked today. <laughs> and that was like, for me, that was a hard one to swallow, like not being able to figure out what went wrong. Like I was so confident. I was so, I set myself up so well. Um, and then kind of like just went into <laughs> hard rock with like, who knows what's going to happen today. And it was actually a much, a much better race at, at hard rock. So this season has definitely thrown me uh, a real curveball. Um, I knew that I was capable of like performing at a double. I had never done hundred milers two weeks and nine and, and six days apart. Like I did at Western States and hard rock. Um, but I've done them four weeks apart, five weeks apart and six weeks apart. And I actually did, I think probably the best performance of my career was the burning river 121. And that was five weeks after an all out race at, at, uh, the Mohican 100. And even though it's like nothing to compare it to, nobody really knows what that performance was really like to me. It's like, I knew that my body can recover and actually be in its best shape pretty shortly after a hundred miler because of, you know, the way your, your fitness trans transfers over from the training block before the first race. Um, and I think that's what happened at, at hard rock, but there, there again, it wasn't like it wasn't necessarily a race that was within my realm of experience to where I really was honed on, in on my skills and, and knew how to execute on race day. Um, but it was a, it was a fun ride for sure. Just like having no idea what was going to happen. And then just like ha watching it unfold on race day, race day and race night. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I think like given your success at Western States, Havelina and Umstead, for me personally, I like to just give you the benefit of the doubt when it comes to saying whether your performance at some of these other courses that are maybe less, less tested, how they compare, because you have that perspective and you have the results to back up that perspective. So it's like an interesting conversation to have with you because of that, because you're maybe one of the few points of entrance into that, because just you don't see that combination of success all that often where people have success out, you know, on courses like Western States and then are also testing some of the courses that you previously mentioned as well. So it's really cool to see that variety remain in your, in your racing and stuff like that. I did want to ask you one thing, cause you had said earlier that I thought was a really interesting point that with Western States, it is such a different experience because like you said, you can have a slightly worse day from a time perspective, but end up 10 plus spots further back, depending on how the years played out. And a lot of times the weather and just the red of carnage of the field and everything like that. And you sort of have the situation then where you, you maybe find yourself in a spot where you're sitting just far enough outside where you think you should be, that it's hard to get the motivation because you feel like you're out of it. 
versus a situation like you were in 2022, where you're kind of moving up the field and you have all the incentive of the world to keep that gas pedal down. Cause you're just, you're, you're still passing people. You're looking stronger than the next guy, whether you acknowledge it or whether you recognize it or not on the day, it's like, you see that kind of playing out and that helps. Do you find this year that perhaps maybe you were further back in a time when you, where if you had been a little further up earlier in the race, you would have been in a spot where you would have been able to push a little harder. Or do you think it was more just physically didn't have it that day, the way you did the year prior? Yeah, I think it was probably physically didn't have it because there were so many check marks along the way that I can remember so vividly. Like when I got to Robinson Flat and I realized I'm done with the snow and I ran the same splits as I did in 22. Okay, mm. so I'm like, wow. It, it was within a couple minutes. I, I didn't look at my watch exactly when I got there, but I'm like, wow, I ran the same time through the snow. And I'm like, at that point, I was like, okay, I am going to just rip these canyons apart. Like, mm -hmm. that's what was going through my head. And I wasn't particularly discouraged by my placement at the time. I'm pretty sure I was like pretty similar to where I was in 2022. Um, so in my mind, I was like, I've got this. I know what I can do on these downhills. Um, but then what was interesting how the day played out, I was having some foot pain during on the downhill. And I wasn't pushing particularly hard in that 30 to 50 mile range into the race, just because I was a little bit afraid that it might be something pretty serious. But so I was being a little timid towards the end. I was like, forget about my foot. Like, let's just push. But I was like hanging on for dear life. And I couldn't even hang on to my splits from the previous year. And as you may know, it was 101 degrees and 22. Okay. And I typically do well in the heat, or at least I thought I did. And that kind of confirmed it. Well, it was, it was 80 degrees or whatever for a high. I mean, it was a freezing cold day at Western States. Um, I mean, it's always hot there, but it was comparatively very, very cold. And I did so much better with like, no downtime like i was spending so little time at eight stations compared to 22 where i was taking so much more time cooling down but when it really came down to it i climbed about the same or a little better in 22 but my downhill was just not nearly as good and i i kind of took it a little bit slower at the beginning and yeah it would have been really encouraging to be further up but like if you could have tapped into to my head and seen what was going through my my head like if 50, 60 miles, I was like, sure, I can, I can work up through this field. Like I'm still thinking very positively, but I really, when I really dug myself a hole and this is how I kind of know that it was my body and it wasn't just lack of incentive. Cause I think a lot of people probably just think that, well, I just wasn't far enough in and didn't really have the incentive to push hard at the end. But I can remember when Cody Lynn caught me on Cal street and like, we were back and forth for a long time. And I can remember like being glad that he caught me because I was like, okay, he's going to really keep me honest. Mm -hmm. But like, it was shortly after I finally could not keep up with him that like the wheels completely fell off the cart. And I can just remember now thinking like, I thought he was going to help me close well on the race. But in turn, like, I think we just destroyed each other trying to like trying to beat each other. So I know I had like in that window of where the, I feel like the race was, was going to pivot for the better or for the worse. I still was like totally confident. I was going to crawl back up into the top 10, which didn't happen. Like 
it was, it was crazy for me, like not being able to work up through the field. Like I always can. Like I was sure that a bunch of the guys in front of me had tore themselves up in the snow and ran way too hard in the snow. And I'm like, I'm just going to catch them. Well, I didn't like, <laughs> it was, it was very confusing for me, like to go through that scenario, but I really did feel very wrecked like deep into the race and i was like i have no idea why i feel this way <laughs> because like on paper like and if i hadn't if i didn't have a 22 to compare it with i would have been like okay that's what i have like that's that's what i have at western states but <laughs> having a 22 to compare it with it was way better and like being set up so much better this year and then just having a lot worse result was like pretty confusing to me but i really have to just like mark it off is that wasn't the day that my body wanted to execute it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like you said before, you know, you sort of have a bit of a mismatch with uh hard rock and what you prepared for and what you're traditionally used to, but so that kind of masks a good performance sometimes, but you felt a lot better out there relative to Western and you referenced some situations in the past that happened like that. Do you think going forward, you're going to sort of maybe try to strategize that way where you do a tune-up race maybe a little bit closer to your key race so that you find yourself feeling perhaps like you did at hard rock or how you felt um in some previous races when you had that close proximity effort earlier on yeah i definitely think and i was talking with jeff browning about this and just talking about the scenario where you do a double because people mm -hmm. don't do that very often very seldom with the 100 mile and what I've found in the few doubles that I've done is you get the same benefit with this, with the, like you get double the benefit of racing with, with, you know, essentially the same amount of recovery time. And like, that may sound obnoxious or whatever to say that it's the same as one race, but I really believe it's, it's very similar to doing one race and that you get the same benefits and in me being the example, like, I feel like I got, if I wouldn't have done hard rock, like if I wouldn't have done Western States, who knows what hard rock, maybe hard rock would have been better. Maybe it would have been worse, but I feel like if I wouldn't have done hard rock, I would have been like screwed out of my summer <laughs> mm, <laughs> because, yeah. and I think, I think when you put a lot of training into a race, you can benefit so much. And I would never recommend that somebody do this without having a lot of racing experience under their belt, but I think you get like the benefit of a training block. You get, you know, two races for the price of one in terms of training, um, because I really didn't put much work at all into hard rock other than just going to altitude and just spending a ton of time at altitude hiking and, and, you know, taking it easy. Um, but if I like, you can get, I just think you can get so much more bang for your buck out of your training if you do doubles so i definitely in the future will embrace the whole double thing the only thing is with like there could be a lot said about how close to stack these together and i'm thinking like the sweet spot must be around four weeks because like if you get more towards six or eight weeks i think it's so much harder because like it's kind of you don't really have a good training between the two races so you kind of lose your fitness from the before the first race, but then you also don't really have time to get fit in between the races. But like one thing I've really found out with doing them three weeks apart, Western and hard rock was like the blistering was so much worse mm. um, because like you still have unhealed blisters from the first oh, race. Yeah. And so that's, 
that's the only thing with doing doubles that like i think four weeks is probably better than three because just simply because of the blisters like the, the legs felt fine for hard rock um the rest of the body was recovered fine but there was just like there were some blisters where i got some little pebbles and junk like inside the blister from mm-hmm. western states at hard rock and like so the pebble is being held in, you know, a very uncomfortable, very uh-huh. thin, tender part of my skin. Yeah. First, the last 65 miles of hard rock, which is like, if you're really gritty, you can kind of like just get through it. But then again, like it, it probably did per- affect my performance when you're in a lot of pain. Like it, you definitely don't want to push nearly as hard. So yeah, there's a lot to be said about, about the scenario of a double. No kidding. Yeah. There is some moving parts there for sure. So well, Arlen, I mean, it's been a blast to chat with you, but I, I need to ask what's next. What do you got in store for the rest of the year? Yeah, it's a bit of a, uh, uh, a yeah, I was going to wait till after hard rock because mm-hmm. like to make any decisions, I was planning either a mountain race at the very end of mountain running season, kind of like find the last race before the snow flies or else like wait and do something flat and fast, like November, December, you know, Cause you know, the mountain running season's season's pretty short here. So, um, I wanted to wait until after hard rock. Cause I was, I was afraid that I would just hate altitude with a passion after hard rock. I remember the mindset after run rabbit run last year, where I was not exposed to nearly as much altitude as, as hard rock was going to be. And I can just remember my headspace, like tr- trying to get, trying to shake the whole altitude thing, like just trying to get over that. And so I was going to wait until after hard rock and, and wait and see, like knowing I'm probably just going to hate altitude. Well, that didn't happen at all. (laughs) I love altitude. So I'm kind of leaning towards the finding a mountain race right at the end of mountain running season. (laughs) Um, Kind of, yeah, probably going to go with that option. Um, But I need to, I don't want to like announce what I'm going to do until I for sure (laughs) have some details because I don't have the right to, to declare right now what it's going to be because I don't have the the details in place, but um, I'm thinking towards another mountain race before, before the snow flies. Well, I'll, I'll let you get away without announcing it here, but you're going to have to let me announce it on my Instagram page when you do decide. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll let you know when I decide. <laughs> oh man. That's yeah. You know, it's, there's a, I mean, what you highlighted there, I think is in ultra running, we are incredibly blessed with lots of options. So if you feel a little, stale with a specific discipline or course type then there's always something drastically different you can pivot to and uh yeah the mountains sometimes they're just calling so i'll look forward to hearing what what you end up deciding to do and then of course i'll have a lot of fun following your the rest of your career and everything that's up but thanks a bunch arlen for um giving me some time and uh sharing some of your stories yeah thanks for having me on it's a lot of fun take care Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode's sponsors include Element T electrolytes and Delta G ketone esters. Element T electrolytes can be found at drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO and are offering a free sample pack with your first purchase. And Delta G ketones can be found at deltagketones.com. Also, give them a follow at deltag.ketones on Instagram. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. 